God inside here and it might be difficult to focus on what you have to say to us, Lord. And so I pray that you would give us comfort, that you would relieve us of any uh, distractions so that we could hear from you and be unhindered in our commitment to study your word, Lord. I pray that you would help me, uh, give me clarity of speech, help me to speak the things that you would have me to say, Lord. I pray that you would challenge us this morning. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Theo, are you a Christian? I was making pancakes, and my nephew, Eli, was watching cartoons. Nothing so far in that morning had prepared me or indicated to me that he and I would be having an evangelistic conversation. Yes, Eli, I am. That seemed to satisfy him because he didn't say anything. He just went back to watching whatever colorful cartoon was on Netflix. Eli, are you a Christian? Yeah. Back to the cartoon. Eli... What does it mean that you and I are Christians? He thought for a few seconds. And then he said to me, It means that you and I will be going to heaven. I thought about his answer for some time now. I know that my nephew is only six, and perhaps the nuances of theology aren't as interesting as the adventures of Phineas and Ferb, but I thought about his answer nonetheless. Mostly, I've thought about it because I think you and I, if given the opportunity to answer the question, would answer it in a similar way. Some of us haven't gotten past this kind of theology. Given an opportunity to talk about the significance of Jesus, we might summarize the gospel by saying that through Jesus, we have eternal life. Jesus has saved me. Now let me go on back to whatever's on Netflix or anything else that's controlling my attention. There's something missing about that answer. Eli is right in a way. The Bible tells us that whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. And so it's somewhat understandable that we would condense the gospel message to our eternal security. I'm going to heaven and not to hell. But if this is all that we understand about our faith in Jesus, then all we have done is limit our relationship with God to a golden ticket mentality. Heaven is the goal, the special place where only those who have a ticket go. So as long as we have one, then we're okay. We are secure. But what if there is more? What if by eternal life, what if by salvation, the Bible meant that we have received not just a guarantee on our eternal resting place, but something more? What if after God made himself known to us, convicted us of our sin, caused us to confess our sin and place our faith on Jesus to make amends for our sin, what if after all of this, there was more. 
You see, I am convinced that our faith, our salvation, does not end with a guarantee about our final destination. For the Christian, the way we live today, the way we relate to God today, has been impacted by the fact that we have been saved by God. Our faith isn't just about what happens when we die, it's also about what happens while we live. So why do we, as Christians, look, talk, and act like everybody else? Why do we allow sin to rule in our hearts? Why are we motivated by greed and selfishness rather than love and mercy? Why do we ignore Jesus' commands to be his hands and his feet and share to the world the good news about his salvation? You see, our faith walk, our life in Jesus involves more. We learn this in our passage this morning in Nehemiah. In our passage in Nehemiah, we find the people at an interesting place. They have been convicted by the Word of God. They have confessed their sin before God. But what comes next? What's the next step? So, I'd like to ask you to turn with me again to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, through the end of chapter 10. Our text this morning is Nehemiah chapter, chapter 9, verse 38, through the end of chapter 10. I'm going to read some, but not all, of this passage. And so I'd like for you to follow along as I read from Nehemiah, the end of verse 9. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, of the priests from Zariah to Shemaiah, of the Levites from Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, to Cadmiel, and their brothers from Shebaniah to Beninu, and the leaders of the people from Perosh to Banah. Verse 28, the rest of the people the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by the servant Moses the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. The events documented in the book of Nehemiah come at a significant point in Israel's history. Most of the people were exiles dispersed throughout the ancient world, living under a foreign king while their land was a waste. And their temple was defiled and destroyed. 
It hadn't always been this way. Israel was a called people with a special relationship to Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth. God made a covenant with Israel. Having freed them from slavery, God called this people his people. He called them to be his bride and he provided for them. He protected them and he provided for them a land that he had promised his ancestors. A land for them to dwell and to be a nation marked by their faithfulness to God as his servants in the midst of a world full of evil and wickedness. But like a cheating spouse, Israel went after other gods. Israel was marked not by justice and righteousness, but instead it was marked by wickedness. They were seduced by neighboring peoples and they wanted to look and talk and act like their neighbors. God had told them to be careful, to remain faithful to him, lest they be cursed and not experience all the good that he had prepared for them. It was strange, really, that the people would hunger for such cheap imitations when the true God stood before them and offered himself to them as their satisfaction. But you and I know that's temptation all too well. You and I understand what it's like to forsake our reward for cheap consolation prizes. And all the while, God was ready to forgive. He remained faithful despite their insistence against his rule over them. But their kings and their priests led the people away from God and they encouraged them to worship idols and to defile the temple. So God sent prophets. He sent servants to warn the people and call them back to himself. But the people were stubborn. They laughed at the prophets, they killed the prophets, and they persisted in their disobedience. You see, the the people assumed that their fate was secure because of the covenant that God had made with them. God had given them a land, he had made them a people, and his presence was in their midst in the temple. They were safe. They were secure in their place as the people of God. Whatever their situation, idol worship, injustice against everyone, they thought they had nothing to worry about because they were in the promised land and the temple of God stood in their midst. So God removed the things that gave them this presumption of innocence and privilege. He sent foreign rulers to defeat their kings and take them as slaves from the land that he had promised their ancestors. He sent these foreign rulers to destroy the temple and to destroy their cities. God did these things to punish his people's rebellion. And so for years, the people of God were strangers in a foreign land. They were forced to serve foreign kings. But in God's time, there arose leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah. Men called to lead the people of God back into the land and back into a right relationship with him. Ezra was the priest, the teacher 
of the law, the one who could preach and challenge the people to obey the law of God. Nehemiah was the governor, the leader who encouraged and challenged the people to build the walls of the city so that they could once again dwell in the land of promise. Together, these two men started a revival among the people. The people had been stirred by Ezra's preaching, by his reading of the word, and they worshipped God and they fasted before him. And they continued to read the law as we heard last week, and they confessed their sins before God. Now, having been convicted of their sin, having confessed their sin, Nehemiah and all the leaders of Israel committed themselves to live according to God's rule. In chapter 9, verse 38, Nehemiah reports that the leaders of those who returned to the land were the first to place their names on the document, commemorating this, this opportunity, commemorating this commitment to be faithful to God. This is a bit of a reversal from previous experience. You see, throughout Israel's history, especially when they were rebelling against God, it was usually the leaders, the royal leaders and the religious leaders who were leading the parade down the path to sin. But here, something different is happening. The leaders are the first to put their names in writing, to say, we will commit to God. Listen, this, this was before the delete button. This was back like the old typewriters where once you, writ, you wrote something, that wasn't going away. So these men, they, they placed their names as representatives of Israel. They committed to be faithful to God. Chapter 10, verse 28 reads, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, on and on, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers to commit to obeying God's law. Everyone in the community committed themselves to live according to God's law. The passage seems repetitive. If the rest of the people also joined in making this covenant, why then would... Nehemiah lists all of their functions. Why would he say the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, their wives, sons, and daughters, on and on and on? Why not just say the rest of the people agreed? Nehemiah's repetition is intentional. You see, Nehemiah is trying to help us understand that everyone, from the least to the highest individual, committed themselves to serving God. Not only that, but Nehemiah is trying to draw a connection between the people that he is ministering to and the people who first heard the law in the time of Moses. See, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, you don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 29, Moses has given the law to the people of Israel. And he stands before them and he says this to them. He says, you are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your waters, water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant 
the Lord your God, which the Lord God is making with you today, that he may establish you as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you, as he swore to your fathers. See, Nehemiah is trying to help the people realize that they are committing to this same covenant. They are hitting the reset button and committing to being faithful to God just as their ancestors had once committed. The similarities, the redundancy is intended. Like a couple renewing their vows, Israel is returning again to God and His law. That is why, according to verse 29, they are entering into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. See, they are well aware of the consequences of disobeying God. To obey God's word is to enter into blessing and rest. To disobey God's word is to enter into curses and terrible consequences. So they agree. We commit ourselves to obeying God's law. Up to this point in the passage, it is clear that they have committed themselves to obeying God's word. Generally speaking, they say, we will do everything that the law commands. But in the second half of the passage, verses 30 through 39, the people list three specific ways that they will commit themselves to honoring God. Look with me as I read some of these verses, beginning in verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land, or take their daughters for our sons. And of the peoples of the land, bring in goods or any grain offering on the Sabbath day to sell. We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moon, the appointed feast, the holy things, and the sin offerings, to make atonement for the sins of Israel. And for all the work of the house of our God, we, the priests, the Levites, and all the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our fathers' houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in our law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of our God. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law. And the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, to bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. Verse 39, for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the wine, and the oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are as, the priests, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. 
having committed generally to keep the commandments of God, the people name three specific ways that they will serve and obey God. These things were important because they addressed some of the key ways that the people of Israel had been disobedient to God's law. The first specific commandment it was to refrain from intermarrying with those who are outside of their faith. This is in verse 30 where it says, We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. This wasn't an ethnic problem, it was a religious problem. All throughout its history, Israel's relationship with its neighbors was all take and no give. Their pagan neighbors always managed to rub off on them and influence them to abandon their God or accommodate idol worship into their own worship. And in his law, God had commanded his people to not intermarry with foreigners so that their children would not be led astray. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 to 4, Moses tells the people, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve their gods. It would seem that the interaction between God's people and those who are not God's people has always been full of difficulties. On the one hand, Israel was to be a pattern for the rest of the world. Their faithfulness and goodness was supposed to be a reflection of God's faithfulness and goodness. And on the other hand, Israel was to maintain a healthy distance between themselves and the world. They were not to become entangled with them. See, throughout most of Israel's history... They were less influencers and more often influenced by the rest of the world. So Israel here commits to maintaining their own religious purity by refraining from intermarrying with the people of the land who did not know and love God. The second specific commandment was to keep the Sabbath. This is in verse 31. It says, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain offerings on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. The Sabbath was an important institution for the formation of Israel as God's people. It remained, it reminded them that the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, was their God. Just as the Lord worked for six days and rested on the seventh day, so they too must rest on the seventh day. God's activity as the creator of the universe was to be a pattern for Israel. In their Sabbath keeping, their resting from work, Israel would be reminded that the Lord was the almighty God. And he was in control of their everyday lives. Keeping Sabbath also served to instruct the people of God to trust Him as their provider. In an agricultural society where you are working the land to be able to eat, resting on the seventh day was difficult. You did not know if there would be a famine in the land the next week. 
And so if you committed yourself to resting and trusting God, you were giving yourself over to his provisions. You were no longer the sole provider for your family. Instead, God was the sole provider for your family. So by resting on the Sabbath, Israel was recognizing that God is the provider and sustainer of all life. It wasn't just every week that the Sabbath was to be practiced. There was actually a law that Sabbath-keeping also involved the seventh year. So that every seventh year, the people of God were to rest. They were to leave the land alone and not take from it. A whole year! Imagine taking 12 months unpaid leave of absence from your job. Would the, pay, would the bills get paid? Would your families be fed? But that was what the Lord commanded Israel so that they could place their trust in God. And not only that, but this was a means to provide for the poor in the society. You see, because someone else was going to take from the land. Those were the poor, the people who were unable to provide for themselves because of some difficult circumstances. And so the Lord is trying to form his people to be a people of mercy and compassion, to care for the oppressed and the widows and those who are poor in their society. That's why it says that they would also give themselves uh, over to the exaction of, uh, of the debts or, or the taking of the debts. In other words, every seventh year, the law commanded that all debts would be wiped clean. You see, owing someone in ancient times was not like owing someone today. If I owe Chase or Bank of America my mortgage payment, I can make minimum payments here or there, I can do other things with my money, I can allocate things elsewhere, I can make minimum payments on a credit card or something else. But that's not the way things worked in Israel, or in ancient society for that matter. If you owed someone... You essentially belonged to that person until you paid off their debt. You couldn't provide for anything else until you were free of the debt you owed that individual. Imagine being an indentured servant to Chase or Bank of America until you paid your mortgage off. Unable to work for any other reason. Unable to save up for a car or save up for your retirement. Everything going to Chase or Bank of America. God was forming his people to be merciful, to be generous, to ensure that there, was, there were no poor among them so that every seventh year all debts were wiped clean. But like their relationship with their neighbors, Israel didn't keep the Sabbath very well. See, throughout its history, instead of trusting God for his provisions, Israel turned to foreign kings, or they turned to themselves to provide for themselves, rather than trust and rely upon God for his security, for his help. And instead of forgiving debts, and inst instead of for, uh, caring for the poor and the oppressed, the people of Israel took advantage of other people. They took advantage of their own people. They took advantage and kept them enslaved by asking for more, for more interest on the debts that they owed. 
So rather than reflecting God's purposes with this law, the people were not keeping the Sabbath. And so here, Israel commits themselves to properly adhering to the Sabbath. To properly trusting, putting their trust in God to be their provider, to be merciful to the poor and the oppressed. Finally, the third specific commandment or commitment that the people made was to the temple. This is found all throughout, beginning in verse 32 down to 39. And the people commit themselves to the temple, its practices, and its care. Like the Sabbath, the temple was an important institution in the religious experience of Israel. The temple was the place of intersection between humanity and God. It was a heaven on earth, the place where the presence of God rested on earth. I won't read the section again, but notice the repetition of the phrase, the house of our God. In verse 32, they give yearly to the service of the house of our God. In verse 33, they give for the work of the house of our God. 34, they agree to delegate the work of bringing wood into the house of our God. And again, this phrase is used in verse 35, 36, 37, 38, and finally in verse 39 where they say, we will not neglect the house of our God. The temple was the house of God. It was the place of residence for God, the place where He dwelled. So it was the center of Yahweh worship for Israel. Here they gave offerings and they sacrificed to God. Not only was it a place of worship, but here their practices were the means by which their sins were forgiven. Here these sin offerings atoned for the sins of Israel. But prior to its destruction, the temple had become a place of wickedness with the religious leaders taking advantage of their positions of power. Worship became self-serving. Rather than worship God with their hearts, Israel began to see their temple as a safety valve. They could do anything that they wanted. They could act any way that they wanted. They could sin wildly so long as they, they, so long as they could go into the temple, offer sacrifices to God, and he would be okay with whichever way they lived their life. Speaking to the people through his prophet Jeremiah, God sends a message to the people who were taking advantage of his presence and his temple. And he says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to false gods and go after them, and then come and stand before me in my house? which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on with all these abominations. Has this house become a den of robbers in your eyes? But now, following the prompting of Ezra and Nehemiah, the priests, the Levites, and all the people committed themselves 
to properly caring for the house of God and properly adhering to the practices according to the law of God. After being convicted and confessing their sin, the people agreed to commit themselves to serving and obeying God. Why was this the next thing to happen in the story? Why was it necessary for the people to commit themselves to serving God? The reason is that freedom from sin, the kind of freedom that the people experience when they confess their sin, works itself out in a commitment to serve God. Our faith expresses itself in service and obedience to God. Before my nephew Eli and I finished talking, I tried to explain to him that being a Christian wasn't just about getting into heaven. Being a Christian, I said, also means that we follow Jesus. It means listening to and obeying what he says to us because he is our Lord. I was kind of surprised by his response to me. Remember, he was watching cartoons. I expected him to sort of ignore what I was saying, but instead he looked at me and he said, but how do we listen and obey to Jesus? Or how do we listen to and obey Jesus? For the follower of Jesus, our situation is not all that different than the situation of Nehemiah and the people of Israel. You see, like them, we listen and obey Jesus when we read his word, when we pray and yield ourselves to the conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit. And as he works, we confess our sins and commit to serving God. And like Nehemiah and the people of Israel, God's word provides for us specific ways that we can obey our Lord. You see, we are not all that different than the people of Israel. And there are specific ways that actually help us to serve our God. The people of Israel committed themselves to keeping themselves pure from those who did not follow God. They vowed to honor God with their interactions with their unbelieving people around them. And you know, Jesus gives us similar instructions. Do you remember when Jesus was on the mountain and he was talking to his disciples and he was providing for them a law, a way to follow him? He said to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Just as Israel was called to be God's servants, working to reflect the glory of God, so we have been called God's church. We have been called to do the work of God among unbelieving people in our community so that God may be glorified and so that they might be convinced of the good news of Jesus Christ. We have been called good news to be a witness in this community. 
We have been called to testify to the glory of God that was made known to the whole world through the death and resurrection of His Son. We, Good News Bible Church, share the good news because it tells the story of God's glory and draws people to repentance and worship. We are in a community that is rapidly changing. All around us, there are individuals and families that do not know God. And we are here for a reason, good news. God has established us, has set us here for a particular purpose. God is not surprised by all of the changes that happen in our community, but instead, God has set us here to be witnesses to his good news. I am convinced that you and I are called to be interacting more with unbelieving people. And at the same time, I am concerned for myself personally that it is too easy to have all of my interactions be with believers. And listen, friends, I enjoy spending time with you and we are called as a church to be together and encourage one another. But we are also called to go out to minister to those who are unbelievers. And it's too easy for us to surround ourselves with those who love Jesus and are committed to serving Jesus. When we interact with, if we opened our eyes, with people who do not know him every day. And sometimes it involves us making an effort to wake up to our interactions with people and to be, make ourselves available to God to be used to impact the places that we are in. Wherever we live, the places where we work. Church, we have to be willing and able to form relationships with people who do not know, who do not know and love Christ. And I don't mean to do things in a way that's self-serving or gives us this great esteem of having of adding numbers to our group but rather what I'm talking about is loving people being concerned for them and as we are loving people and being concerned with them we begin to the, the gospel begins to become an outflow of our conversations an outflow of our interactions because God has changed us he has transformed us and it becomes natural to share this with other people Church, we have been called to be a light post here in this community. Our city is in great need of a Savior. Every day there are reports of young people being killed by young people. We've got a problem in the city of Chicago. And I can't help but think that God has established churches like Good News Bible Church to be catalysts for change that honors God. We have young people here, Good News. How are we going to shepherd the hearts of the young people within our community? Those who are a part of our youth group. Those who attend our services through the ministry of ICI. What are we doing as a church to impact their lives? 
church, we can't leave it to the workers of ICI or leave it to the, the leaders of, of, of our youth group. We all have to be involved as the family of God to support our ministries and to support our young people and to minister them, to tell them that they are valuable in the eyes of God. So I want to challenge us. Let us be the salt and light of this world in our community, among our young people, so that we might act as the called ones of God, as the church, Good News Bible Church, to minister to those all around us, called to be His witnesses. The people of Israel also committed themselves to keeping the Sabbath in order to recognize God as their provider. Again, during the ministry of Jesus, Jesus instructed his disciples, calling them to look and trust in God. Again, on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He said, pray in this way. Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. And when he was talking with his disciples, he said to them, do not be anxious about anything. Don't you see the birds of the air and how they do not worry about where they will eat or what they will wear? You serve God. He says to them, Will any of you add an inch of life or a minute or a day by being anxious? Jesus was instructing us as his disciples the same way that the Sabbath was instructing the people of Israel to trust God, to rely upon Him for all the things that make us anxious, for all the things that worry us. What is weighing heavy on your heart? What are you anxious about? Is it your job situation? Is it the future of your children? Is it the health of your parents or your loved ones? Jesus tells us, don't be anxious about anything. You serve the Almighty God. The God of the universe, the God who is the creator of heaven and earth, the God who is on your side, who understands you, who cares for you. Don't think that you will add anything to your life by being anxious. But instead, turn to God for comfort, for for trust, trust Him, rely upon Him as He will work in our lives and He will provide for us. All sorts of situations will come into our lives that we have absolutely no control of. But God does not lose control. God does not become anxious over anything, but instead He is working in our lives to help us to trust Him, to help us to See Him as God. You know, I think sometimes you and I need to be better Sabbath practicers. You and I busy ourselves with activity and we fail to see the ways in which God is working all around us. I want to challenge us. Sabbath. Rest from work. Stop working. Stop busying yourselves Stop busying ourselves so that we can see all the things that God is doing, so that we can trust God to do what He is going to do in our lives. 
got a Sabbath, church. We've got to rest in God. We have to trust Him. The third commitment that the people of Israel took was that they committed to the temple. They committed themselves to this place where God and humanity intersected. Things have changed, though, in God's salvation plan. The temple is no longer the place where God and humanity meet, but instead, this is Jesus. See, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus came to dwell among us. And He became man. He became God-man where humanity and God could intersect, where we could experience the presence of God. So we commit ourselves, not to the temple, but we commit ourselves to Jesus. You see, the temple was the place where the people of Israel could have their sins forgiven. But Jesus is the perfect sacrifice who allows us to experience God's reconciliation and who gives us hope that we might be able to live like Him and please God with our actions. So you and I commit ourselves not to the practice of temple worship, but we commit ourselves to the practice of Jesus worship, to the practice of Jesus' obedience, so that we might hear the words that Jesus has to say to us. We commit ourselves to these things. Are you a Jesus follower? Are you a Jesus disciple? Friends, if you're not, the only place for you to receive reconciliation with God, the only place for you to experience God's goodness in your life is in Jesus. Friend, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are committed to Him, then we have to commit to following His pattern for our lives. Jesus becomes the way for us to live. Jesus becomes the model for us to please God. At the end of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his disciples that the one who hears his words and does them is like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. Then he says, the one who hears my words and does not do them is a foolish man. Because judgment will come, suffering will come, and their house will and they themselves will not stand. See, in Jesus, you and I can stand firm before God. By obeying His words, you and I can do the things that we have been called to do as the people of God. We have received freedom through our salvation in Jesus. But this freedom does something in us. It allows us to and calls us to obedience. Through Jesus, we have been freed from the power of sin and death. We are no longer slaves to sin, but now we are the servants of God. Church, you've been freed from sin. Now go and serve the Lord your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word today. We give you thanks for your call to serve and honor you. 
We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to your call. We pray that we would be faithful to obey you. And we thank you, Jesus, that you provide a helper for this. Your Holy Spirit indwells us and gives us the power to obey you. So forgive us, Lord, for our sins and help us, Lord, to live lives that honor and reflect your glory. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.